Hello and welcome to the Euactive Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. I'm Gerardo Fortuna. I'm Julia Dam. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractive's Agri-Food News team. This week, we talk about the impact of the energy crisis on agriculture in the EU, the upcoming State of the Union address, solar panels on farms and Brazilian liquor. So welcome back and particularly welcome back to Gerardo, who was missing Hello. last week. How does it feel to be back? Well, it's actually, I mean, I, I feel home, no? Even though I'm not in your in the same room of yours, but uh, yeah. Very philosophical. <laughs> yeah. well, we've missed you very much. The space doesn't matter, someone would say. I mean, there must be a <laughs> philosopher who said that, so. You're mentally in this room with us. Indeed. Yeah. Well, uh, this week we're having a bit of a focus on, like everyone, I think, at the moment, everyone's <laughs> talking about it, the energy crisis which of course it impacts every single sector um we're seeing its impact you know getting more and more everywhere but uh it's especially impacting farmers now and especially this week um so food producers have started really sounding the alarm over the impact that this crisis is having on them and we had a couple of stories about this this week um I spoke to, uh, actually, it was a, a fruit producer. So it's the harvest time right now for apples and pears in the EU. And that means we've got about 12 million apples and 2 million pears mm. ready to be picked from the fields. And of course, they they need somewhere to go. And normally other they go... Other than our bellies. Other than our bellies. Or Before going into our bellies. Eventually, hopefully going into our bellies. But at the moment, there's some there's a lot of risk that actually these are going to go to waste because, or they could go to waste because normally they have to go into cool storage. And of course, that takes a lot of energy. And so the small producers, especially the small producers, are just being hit with bills that are just absolutely impossible for them to, to, to pay. I mean, there was one Belgian farmer who was reporting that his annual 3,000 euro bill has skyrocketed to 50,000 euros. So it's massive. Oh, my God. Yeah, I don't know how yeah, how you can be expected to, you know, be faced with a bill like this. And of course, this is having a huge impact. They're now saying, you know, not just this year, but also for next year, because they're saying, well, you know, do we continue harvesting? Do we continue growing and planting into next year as well? You know, those are the, the big questions that are coming as well. So really hitting uh, the sector and they're not the only ones because uh, EU food companies are also now basically sounding the alarm that they're facing potential closure. They're talking about whether they have to either pause production and only, you know, have production in maybe the lowest energy times or stop production in the peak energy moments or lay off staff or, you know, in the worst case scenario, some of them are already signaling they might even decide to go out of business or have to go out of business um, because of these mounting prices. Uh, so, you know, obviously, again, the same thing, the first in the firing line are SMEs, uh, especially those in very uh, energy intensive sectors such as bakery, vegetable processing and dairy. Uh, so it's really starting to hit home, I think, uh, for the European agri-food sector. Yeah, absolutely. And another kind of turn of this um, gas and energy debate um, is the side of fertilizers, which we've been talking about a lot as well. Mm. Um, in the area of fertilizers, uh, there's basically a double problem of um, imports from Russia and Belarus, which are two very, um, very big um, exporters of mineral fertilizers to the EU. Um, so these imports are basically, um, well, in the case of Belarus, they're sanctioned, so they aren't even allowed. And in the case of Russia, they're not part of the sanctions, but 
because no one wants to insure them uh, they're not coming in either. So basically the EU market is missing a huge chunk of its usual supply of mineral fertilizers, uh, which has been driving the price, prices for these fertilizers um, very high. Uh, and on top of this, um, production of mineral fertilizers is also very gas intensive. So even domestic producers are struggling um, to keep up with uh, the extra demand that they're trying to um, cater to. And in the face of this, um, farmers this week called to scrap tariffs on basically all um, usually all widely used types of uh, mineral fertilizers. Um, so they want imports to come into the EU tariff free until 2024 in an effort to make uh, prices a bit more bearable for farmers. Um, but at the same time, uh, which is very unusual, uh, farmers are actually at odds on this with um, the fertilizer industry. Usually they're quite the team in calling for, uh, well, basically uh, championing sim similar positions. But on this issue, they're actually quite at odds because while farmers have an interest in these tariffs on um, fertilizer inputs being scrapped to, uh, to lower prices well, for them, uh, the domestic industry is very unhappy with this with this proposal. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting because it's not, well, you know, it's not that they're necessarily always aligned, but normally farmers and, you know, industry. Kind are, of a natural coalition. Yeah, it's a natural usually. coalition. It's a part, yeah, they kind of work together. They normally see them at least in the same sphere of thinking. But in this respect, they're really pulling in completely opposite directions. Mm. They're, yeah, they're completely at odds because obviously for domestic producers, uh, if you scrap uh, tariffs on imports is going to be very difficult for them. And um, the director of Fertilizers Europe, one of the industry associations, told me that um, seeing as gas prices are like several times higher in Europe than, say, in the US, uh, eight to ten times higher, actually, um, this just puts European producers in an uncompetitive position. So if you open up the market to imports tariff-free, uh, they're not going to they're going to be crowded out of the market, basically. Um, and this is actually an ongoing discussion because the commission proposed um, a temporary uh, scrapping of some tariffs uh, in July, back in July, uh, namely urea and ammonia. So um, some inputs commonly used for producing nitrogen fertilizers, but the farmers are calling to um, to make to extend this to all common types of fertilizers, basically. Uh, and next, it's in the hands of member states who are going to discuss it next. So we'll see what they make of it. And indeed, the, the energy topic and the impact of uh, the energy crisis on the agricultural sector will be also uh, one of the topics in the uh, much-awaited State of the Union address uh, that uh, this week is going to be delivered by Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in Strasbourg. Uh, as you know, every year the Commission President uh, is setting uh, the ambition uh, of the of uh, her administration in this speech that she's delivering uh, in Strasbourg uh, before MEPs. And um, last week on Friday, there was a special energy council to cope with the, to, to, to uh, address the current energy crisis. And already in that energy council, there was something on, uh, um, on the agriculture sector as uh, uh, the, the fertilizer sector that uh, Julia was mentioning before. Uh, in a known paper of the Commission in which the EU executive were listing all the potential measures that they could do, that they could uh, take in order to cope with the current crisis. Uh, they mentioned also the possibility of, for instance, uh, taxing 
the extra profits of uh, fossil fuel companies uh, mm -hmm. who made big profits actually big profits during the crisis and uh, this solidarity contribution uh, should go to ease the burden of the energy intensive sector including for instance the fertilizer so it was already discussed on friday as a potential tool and uh, we also expect uh, that the, um, the agri-food and, and in particular the food security issue will be mentioned by Ursula von der Leyen. Of course, uh, you can follow the coverage on your active on Wednesday. We're going to have a live blog. We're going to have uh, even a special podcast uh, with uh, our producer, Evi, um, with some comments by the, um, our, our experts on different uh, policy uh, hubs uh, at your active so we're gonna we have we're gonna have plenty of time discussing what the what von der Leyen uh, will say at this uh, much awaited speech and at the same time uh, we spoke we spoke about food security food security is also will be again a topic of the AgriFish informal uh, council, uh, which will be actually on Friday. On Thursday, there will be uh, some visit because it's, it's the informal in Prague. And I think that someone in this uh, uh, room actually is expected to be there. Who could this be? Good to be. <laughs> it's true. The rumors are true. I'm going to be in Prague next week. Um, I'm going to different farms and talking to different people there um, for the for the informal next week because, of course, the State of the Union is not the only exciting thing happening next week. Actually, yeah, <laughs> less people are excited about the agri-fish and the State of the Union, but still, still, still a highlight for us. I would say. Very Otherwise, unfortunate. I'm excited, I'm very excited. So, uh, exactly. We make we'll up. make up for it. Enthusiasm. <laughs> And of course, as Gerardo mentioned, the, the main theme of this informal um, agri-fish, this meeting of uh, agriculture ministers next week, will be food security. So ensuring, ensuring food security, the role of EU agriculture and food in sustainable global food production. That's the, the kind of title of, of the discussions next week. So there'll be talks about the situation on agricultural markets. There'll be also some discussion about sustainabilities of, uh, sustainability of food production. Um, and also there'll be a, a little bit of a discussion about in innovations and new trends in genomic techniques. So that's all coming up next week, but be sure to watch you active um, and we'll be reporting on that from Prague. You're listening to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on youractive.com forward slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge in other fields, you can also listen to our Digital Brief Podcast and Beyond the Byline Podcast. And if you have any comments or ideas, you can email us at podcast at youractive.com. So we've already talked quite a bit about the energy crisis today and there's um, another angle that we haven't talked about as much, which is that obviously in the face of um, trying to phase out um, Russian fossil fuels, fossil fuels in general as well, um, we're looking for alternatives and of course um, primarily um, for renewable alternatives, including on uh, in the agri-sector, on-site, on-farms. And one of the options here are... Um, Agri solar panels, agri PV, so basically solar panels on farms, um, which could basically help uh, steer away from fossil fuels. But at the same time, this also touches on another current crisis, 
that uh, you've all heard a lot about, uh, which is the food crisis, food security crisis, uh, because, of course, uh, putting solar panels or renewable energy on farms also increases the pressure on agricultural land and the different uses um, other than food production that it's used for. So I talked about this topic to an expert on agri-solar PV, Andreas Schweiger from the University of Hohenheim in southern Germany. And first up, I asked him to help us understand a bit what exactly we're talking about when we're talking about agri-PV. So let's listen to what he had to say. So agri-PV or agri-photovoltaics, as it's also called, it's basically it's the idea of combining energy production with the production of foods or of crops or of vegetables um, at the same place on, on site or at the field, at the field scale on the field. So could you walk us through what type of agriculture is actually possible combining solar panels with uh, agricultural production? Is it possible for livestock, for uh, for crops? Uh... I mean, of course, there's a, there's a lot of ideas right now in the room. And of course, there are also ideas of combining that with livestock. So combining like having livestock stables combined with PV systems, of course, all that might be possible under certain circumstances, but might be not possible under other circumstances. So for, for growing plants or for growing vegetables, there are, of course, plants which are better able to cope with these conditions or evil even might profit from such kind of conditions. So con with conditions, I mean that you, of course, have these systems, of course, cause shading um, below the system. So that means the plants will definitely have, or these systems will definitely have a negative effect on the plant's growth as they reduce the amount of light they get, the plants get. But of course, under certain circumstances, um, such these plants might profit and different some species might profit more than other species. So would you say this is an opportunity facing the energy crisis that we currently got to supply an alternative source of energy and also to maybe to supply farmers with an additional source of income obviously it it gained a lot of traction now with these with these energy crises which is of course sad that we need a need at first a war that people start really thinking about finding alternative alternative ways of getting energy getting more renewable energies into the system um But as I said, under certain circumstances, these systems might be really beneficial for farmers, not under every condition. So as I said, if you have shading, of course, that will have negative impacts on plant growth. So you will probably have under, let's say, modest conditions when you have a lot of water available, you might have a negative effect on plant growth, thus on agricultural production. And... Um, But under other circumstances, and you know, we are also, beside war, we are also experiencing a lot of climatic changes. And especially in Central Europe, we are experiencing more and more really heavy drought events. And under such kind of circumstances, so when we have really water shortage, such, such kind of PV systems and the reduction of light and thus also evapotranspiration, might be really beneficial for plants growing underneath these systems. As I said, it's not a, it, I don't think it's a general solution and it can just be, I think, a part of the, of the overall solution to get rid of fossil energy and find alternative sources. But I think it, especially for, for the combination of food production and energy production, 
in the face of climate change, I think it's a really important part. So that's interesting. So actually, you can you can use agri-PV both for climate mitigation, so to curb the, uh, the extent of climate change and for climate adaptation to make farms more resilient towards the impacts of climate change. Exactly, yeah. So do you see any risks as well to this uh, to this technology? If you think about, for example, the pressures that we have on agricultural land um, being used for stuff other than farming food, um, especially in the context of the current food security crisis, do you think there's some trade-offs, some risks here as well? Of course, it's it's a it's an additional component of of the use of landscapes, and definitely it provides an alternative pressure on agricultural land, but also on any other kind of land um, where you could put up such kind of systems. So it would definitely be would definitely be a bad idea to just without any knowledge put up a lot of these systems or it establish a lot of these systems so as i said under some circumstances it might be better under 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 others it might be not so first of all we kind of need a quite quite solid knowledge of under which circumstances it might be a good idea to implement such kind of systems on agricultural feeds as you said we have not only these fields for producing energy but of course we need these fields also for producing food But as I said, in the face of climate change, there will definitely be circumstances under which such kind of systems will provide a double positive effect on food production as well as on energy production, renewable energy production. So if you say that we need this knowledge about um, how how we can combine solar PV with agricultural production and where it's possible, how far has science come on that? Uh, how And what's where are we on that? Do we know in which areas in Europe, for example, this would work the best? I mean, definitely it will be related to the amount of water we have have available in the landscape. So the, the less water is available, the more scarce rainfall gets, the more important such kind of systems might get. Um, but still research has to be done. We are we are actively working on these topics, especially on these, as you said, climate change mitigation effects of agri-PV systems. Um, but definitely we will, of course, this is what researchers always say, we need more research. So the interesting thing about this whole topic of agri-PV is that um, it became really, it became really um chic to talk about that and to to try to implement that as fast as possible because of different pressures we were we already heard about so we really have to be careful that that we do not implement something where we do not have solid knowledge on so we really have to get fast in running our research to give as fast as possible solid um recommendations where to implement such kind of systems and where not and for this of course we need We need money, um, but so we we are we are on the topic right now, and I think a, a lot of more research will come in the next years, which will help us to to find the most optimal conditions under which such kind of systems um, will be beneficial for food production as well as for energy production. So, talking of money, could you help us understand a little bit 
how these um, these solar panels work out financially for farmers? What are kind of the models uh, that farmers sign up to? Is it do external companies put them up and then farmers get like a share of the profits, or is it farmers who own them? How can I, how can I picture this? There are different possibilities, and both of them, which you mentioned, are can be realized. So there are the cases where the actually the farmer owns the system and thus gets the revenue from the energy production directly as well as from the fruit production. But there are also cases where companies try and or are about to implement such kind of systems on fields and then ask farmers to run the farming on these fields. I think the most challenging as most challenging part of the of the implementation of such kind of systems and I'm now talking about Germany is actually the legal issue. So um, the legal framework for that is ways behind um, where we actually would should have should be right now to start implementing such kind of systems in the landscape. So a lot still to be done on the part of policymakers and researchers really. Exactly, exactly. Especially in the legal part, we we this has to be really pushed forward. Otherwise, we will have no chance to implement such kind of solutions in the landscape in the next years in a significant amount. Thank you for the interview. So for this week's flavor of the week, it comes all the way from Brazil. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I know, a bit more exotic than usual. Um, and we're, as you said at the beginning, Yulia, we're actually uh, learning a little bit about a Brazilian liquor called cachaça, which I can never pronounce properly. I'm not even sure I got it right that time. Anyway, um, I actually spoke to someone at a cachaça distillery in Brazil where I was this uh, summer. Uh, so let's learn a little bit more about uh, what this, uh, this alcohol is. My name is Alvaro. I work in a cachaça factory. Mm -hmm. And cachaça is an alcohol made by the fermentation of the sugarcane. Start here in Brazil in the um, 1503. Mm -hmm. And it starts with the, um, like a sli slave things. And the, when the Portuguese came here, they the used slaves mm. to make cachaça. Actually, it's not to make a chasse. They used the slave to make uh, the sugar from the sugar cane. We call it molasses here. Okay. Uh, so the slaves used all the leftovers to fermentate that and drink that alcohol. Mm -hmm. And that was the born of the cachaça here in Brazil. Mm -hmm. uh, in this factory, we, um, we ground the sugar cane. We take the juice to make a fermentation. It's always an organical fermentation. Uh, the fermentation is really quick. And then we distill it uh, in 90 degrees to make the pure cachaça. Always, always we have to care about that drink because it has a lot of methanol. So we have a lot of controls with that. Mm -hmm. We have to make separations in different types of cachaças, like head of the cachaça, heart of the cachaça, the tail of the cachaça. But... Do you also export this outside of Brazil? or is uh, it kind of Actually, Brazil? we are of the newest factory here in Brazil, so mm -hmm. we don't have enough production to export. But we work just with one guy in Germany. Okay. Um, I think he works in Amsterdam and he, he has an online store. But we send just like 1% of all our production mm -hmm. to him. 
but we just left here in Parachi. It's all um, consumed uh, just consume for here. Ah, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, Parachi here it's an historical. It's like a cachaça point. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of tourists. It's a touristic point. Uh, and there is all of a lot of people from Brazil who came here to take our products, our mm -hmm. cachaça, and take from outside. So it actually comes from Parachi. Exactly. Right. It was produced here, like it's created produced here. here. Exactly. Was ah, a, okay. was the first time, the first part in Brazil to create and sell the cachaça to outside. Mm. And if you had to describe the flavor of it, okay. How uh, so would you describe it? For, for the for the EU for audience, you've <laughs> <laughs> not tasted it. Okay. Uh, the flavor, it's like. Really similar to a room. It's a really um, strong alcohol with a little bit the flavor of the sugar cane. So it has a um, non-sweet flavor, but with the flavor of the sugar cane. It's like hard to describe a pure alcohol. Yeah. It's very good. I do enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Uh, this week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by your Actives AgriFood team. Gerardo Fortuna, Natasha Food, and Julia Dam, with the technical support of our podcast producer, Evi Chiori. You can also find this podcast on all major streaming platforms that includes Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the latest agricultural news in the EU. I'm Natasha Foot. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week. Mm -hmm.